Nehemiah chapter 9. So after we have the second list of the Levites there in verse 5, we read God's word saying, when they said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way that they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, you did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. 
You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. When they were oppressed, they cried out to you. And from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them. Time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them. Or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, Enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvests go to the kings you have placed over us, they rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Amen. Well, beloved, you remember here in Nehemiah chapter 9, on this occasion, in the days of Nehemiah, there was this spontaneous day of worship, particularly a day of fasting and prayer and confession of sin. And we considered last time from the first five verses of chapter 9 the place of confession and the confession of sin in the Christian life and in the Christian church. And it's in the rest of Nehemiah chapter 9 that we have the privilege of having recorded for us how they prayed and how they confessed. We have, it seems, the words that the Levites used to lead the people in a prayer of confession and praise, being, as it were, the mouthpiece of the people to God. It's almost certain that this is not all that was said in those hours of worship, but it's enough for us in God's wisdom to have in order to learn and to be helped. And what we have here is so often very helpful. It's more than just having someone tell us what to do, to have someone actually show us how it is to be done. And so, yes, we are to confess before the Lord. And we could just say that to other people, or uh, you could just say it to your children. But here we have how it was actually done. I was speaking to someone this morning about uh, learning how to witness, how to evangelize. And it's one thing just to say, yeah, you need to go out and be a witness for Jesus. But isn't it so much greater of a blessing to have someone say, well, come along with me and I'll show you how it's done. And really, that's what we have here. You need to be a confessing people. Okay? How? Well, here's the how. Here's the how. And as we come to this chapter, we see, even as they spent time confessing sin, which they did, the focus and the goal of this whole chapter is what it always should be, the glory of God. The first words provide the theme of this prayer. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see how multifaceted this glorifying of God is. In this prayer, there is the confessing of the glory of God himself, as well as the unfaithfulness and ingratitude and sin of his people. It's all mingled together. And the way that this chapter proceeds, as you've already noticed, I'm sure, is along the lines of an historical outline. It goes from creation to Abraham to the Red Sea and Egypt to the time of the judges all the way up to the days of Nehemiah. It's an historical outline. And that's not uncommon in the Bible. We have several what are called historical psalms sometimes, that, that sound very much like Nehemiah chapter 9, like Psalm 78 and 105 and 106. 
Psalms 135 and 136. And so if we see this kind of pattern repeated, it's something for us to learn. It is a pattern that God is teaching us and that wants a pattern that he wants us to use. It's good to take time to think back over history, biblical history, world history, your family history, the history of this congregation. It's good to take time to think about that and to rehearse that in prayer before God for his glory. This is, uh, this is something we need to learn how to do and to practice doing. You know, our prayers can, can very easily get into ruts, can't they? And we just very easily pray the same things in the same way day after day after day. Now, it's not wrong to pray for the same things over and over again. So we see evidence of that in the Bible. But here's a way that we can learn to expand our prayers, to expand the way we come before God to confess. Uh, Matthew Henry wrote a book called, it's now called, I think it's published under the name, A Way to Pray, where he takes you through Scripture and expands all different ways to pray. So if you're interested in learning how to pray more expansively and more intensively, then have a look at a book like that. But all that Matthew Henry does is mine the Scripture. All that he does is go back to Scripture and say, look at how they prayed. And that's what we're doing tonight in Nehemiah chapter 9. This historical pattern prayer. But it's even more than just a, an historical example for us to copy in our day. I think we need to see it as more than that. This is our history as well. It's not just, oh, these people are looking at their history, and we can sort of look at what they did, and we can just bring that and apply it to our history. It's much more than that as the church, as the people of God. This is, if you're a Christian, this is your history. This is my history as the people of God. We should never enter into a chapter like this merely academically or impersonally, but as the story of our family, our people, the people of God. And I think if we do that, the more that we do that, the more appreciative it will make us. And the more we'll be turned in, tuned in to how relevant a passage like this is for us. Now, we live in a different time. We're blessed to live in the full light of Christ and in the outpouring of the Spirit. But we are still the people of God in the world as they were the people of God in the world. And so as we're reading their history, we're reading our history And we should be very interested to read it. You know, if I know that there are certain tendencies or weaknesses in my family history, even just on a physical level, I should be very interested in that and more on guard because of it. That's why doctors do family histories. I go to my doctor. She says, tell me about your dad. Tell me about your mom. Oh, Okay, you're going for that test. And that's wise and right. 
Well, here we have a family history of the people of God. And we're going to see some things. And this is the history of the church in the world. And so we just be foolish to think that these sorts of things aren't things that we need to watch out for too. That as you read this and say, wow, they did that? We'd never do that. Well, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. We are capable of these very things. And so it's not just an abstract exercise. This is personal, family, spiritual history. And we do well to give our attention to it. This is part of your family history. Watch and pray. Well, blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Why? Why should the name of God, and that's everything that God is and by which he reveals himself, why should the name of God be blessed above all else? Well, we're just going to touch on some highlights from Nehemiah chapter 9. Just go back again and read it again. It preaches itself. We should bless God for his being. We should bless God for his being. Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. You alone are the Lord, verse 6. You are God and there is no other. It says Isaiah, there is no other rock, I know not one. Nehemiah chapter 9 begins the same way that Jesus began. Our Father in heaven, as he taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Bless God for his being. He is not a man, he's not like a man. He is not finite or limited in any way. He is glorious in his unique, eternal, unchanging, infinite, triune being. Praise him. Unless humanity, by God's grace, learns to look outside of humanity or above humanity, it will never be right. You will never be right. We will be lost in sinful self-centeredness and hopeless self-sufficiency. Bless God for his being. That there is a being who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, faithfulness, and truth. Bless God for his creation. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. How often in the Bible God wants us to recall that he is the creator. That's why the devil has been so busy to try to uh, dissuade people of that doctrine, especially through, through Darwinian evolution. Creation displays the wisdom and power of God. And while that leaves people without excuse, Romans 1, it is also for the comfort of God's people 
in God's wisdom and power. Is anything too hard for the God who spoke into nothing and said, let there be light, and there was light? Jeremiah understood that. That's why in Jeremiah 32, 17, he says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Bless God for his creation. Don't compare yourself to your problems. Compare your problems to the God of creation. Bless God for his providence. We're just going quickly here. But each one of these deserves thought and meditation. Bless God for his providence. The second half of verse 6. You give life to everything. God's general providence gives and sustains life in this world. Thank him. In him you live and move and have your being. Unbelievers, skeptics who use their own mouths and breath to curse God, do it with the gift that God has given them. And then we see here the special providence of God in giving life, as it were, to the church. Verse 7, you chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God made a nation out of a man and woman who could have not even had a child of their own. They were as good as dead. His special providence of bringing a church into being. And then God's providential care of his people. Verse 15, in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, you gave them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Verse 20 and 21, you gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Yes, that was unique and special and miraculous providence. But God takes care of his people every day. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. Do not worry about tomorrow, Jesus said. And God also has, doesn't he, toward his people, providential pity. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. Bless God for the pity that he displays in his providence. He knows your frame. He remembers that you're dust. He hears the cry of his people. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Verse 10, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. God knows. God knows what's happening to you in your life. And if you're being mistreated, he knows. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. Verse 10, bless God for his providence. Bless God for his word, his word. He's given precious promises. Verse 8, he made a covenant with Abraham. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. He gave perfect laws, verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. 
You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. We should bless God for his word, his promises, his laws. Deuteronomy 4.8, Moses says, What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? You know, when we think about ethics and morality and all the issues that flow from those questions, there are really only two options. Ethics and morality are either speculative on the one hand, which means that people try to make them up as they see fit, or they are revealed. Our Creator telling us what is good and right and just. What a blessing to have revealed ethics, revealed morality in the law of God. Bless God for His Word. But then we come more to the pith of this chapter. Bless God for His forgiveness. And this is where the pattern of this chapter is really seen. And you picked up on that as the chapter was read, because it it seemed to just be repeating itself in the same sort of pattern, a sad and sinful pattern, that we can be in danger of repeating ourselves. God blessed the people, but then a verse like verse 16, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. The word there, arrogant, is sometimes translated insolent. It's the same word in verse 10 for how the Egyptians acted toward the Israelites. And now that's the way that the people of God are acting toward God. Verse 17, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine the way they were to take. And then God blesses again. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion and Og. They captured fortified cities, verse 25. Fertile land, they took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, all of gross fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But what happened? Verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their back on your law. They killed your prophets who who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So what did God do? You delivered them into the hands of their enemies, verse 27, who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. And from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. And then what happened? Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. 
Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them. And here's the point. Time after time. I'm just taking time to go after over it in detail from this chapter because that's what happened time after time after time. You know, when Jesus told the disciples to forgive 70 times 7, he was only reading God's record of his dealings with his people. What a lesson there is for us here. I heard someone once years ago say that so many Christians relate to God as they relate to the spare tire in their car. And you only think about it when you need it. I had two cases in the past two weeks of people blowing out their tires and, well, where's the spare? Where's the spare? It's the only time you think of it. And how, in a way, spiritually dangerous it is to be blessed and to be at rest. And I'm not saying that because I despise blessing and rest. It's wonderful, and it's a gift. But this is a pattern, and it's spiritually dangerous, potentially, for us. If we really see what happened over and over and over again. So the Puritans used to say poverty has slain her thousands, but affluence her tens of thousands. Someone was saying this morning how they had been sick the last couple of weeks with the flu. And then you get better, and you forget the things that you thought when you were sick. Now, do we wish for suffering or trouble or trial to come on us or to anyone else? No, we're not spiritual masochists. But what a pattern is revealed for us here. Give me neither too much nor too little. It says in the Proverbs. So that you're not tempted to steal on the one hand, break God's law, but so that you're not tempted to forget him either. Oh, bless God for his forgiveness time and time again. And then, of course, related to that, Bless God for his patience, verses 30 and 31. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them over in the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Bless God for his patience. If it were us, we would have had enough of us long ago. And sometimes we're, we struggle to be patient with people around us. There, there's one sure remedy for that. You think of how patient God is with you. That's the remedy. slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, patient with us as individuals 
and as congregations. Well, and then praise God for his faithfulness. On what basis could we ever hope to come to him again? In trouble, again, much of it on account of our own sin, while we come full circle. Our confidence is in God's own nature, in his justice and his faithfulness to his own word, his own promises, promises we know are yes and amen in Christ. When we come to verse 32, it's, it's interesting. This is the only petition in this prayer. It's the only request. There hasn't been a request yet until verse 32. After all the rehearsal of God's dealings with his people and his people's repeated defections, this is what we read. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us. Even though the temple and the walls had been rebuilt, the people were still subjugated and oppressed. Verse 37 ends just so starkly, doesn't it? We are in great distress. Oh, we are too in lots of ways, as we sit here tonight. We're in great distress about all kinds of things. We can think of the ways that we're distressed. But in it all, God acts faithfully. Whatever has been happening in your life, even in this present distress, in all that has happened, verse 33, to you have been just. You have acted faithfully. And then they say, well, we did wrong. God acts faithfully to you. Well, we still so often do wrong. And yet we can and should bless God. He will never break his covenant of love with his people. And this supper, as often as we celebrate it, confirms the promise and faithfulness and forgiveness of God. We bless God because what Paul wrote in Romans is a banner over all the historical pattern of the church and of our lives as well. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then Paul adds this pattern-breaking reminder. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer?